Hey, everybody. If you like the Nothing But Nylon podcast and would like to receive more, hopefully, smart basketball content, I started a weekly newsletter that you can get for $5 a month. If you're interested, you can go to my Twitter page at NBA Couchside and click on the link to my Patreon page in my bio. Also, there's a sample of the newsletter on my website, nbacouchside.com, about Milwaukee's Giannis Adetokounmpo. Thanks, and enjoy the show. everyone, before we get started, I have a correction. In our conversation, Andre and I discussed Ben Taylor's website, Backpicks, and I mistakenly called it Backpicks.net. It's actually Backpicks.com, in case you're interested in checking it out. Welcome to episode 9 of the Nothing But Nylon podcast, the Nylon Calculus podcast. Uh, today we have a uh, new guest, somebody that hasn't been on the show before, uh, writer for the side who's uh, started to be uh, fairly prolific, um, Dr. Andre Snellings. Uh, Andre, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Kevin. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. I've been, I've been looking forward to, to having you on for a while. I know the, some of the scheduling stuff, uh, mostly on my end, was uh, try, trying to get things worked out um, has been uh, you know a challenge, but um, you've written so much uh good stuff for the site recently i had to get you on so um happy that you're that you're finally on the on the show no doubt so just uh where you're this is your first appearance on the the podcast i figured uh, i get sort of your basketball origin story sort of how did you <laughs> uh become a, a basketball fan who's your team uh what's your your story with basketball my origin story. I feel like, I feel like an X Man. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, you know, I, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, um, and there aren't any NBA teams in Dayton, Ohio, or even near it. Like in football and in baseball, I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan because that's not too far from me. But in basketball, the Cincinnati Royals moved before I was born, so I didn't have a natural home team. But what I had was a pops that, that liked ball, and he was a Dr. J fan. So. The, the the my first basketball memories are probably those early 80s 76ers teams with Dr. J and Moses Malone and going up against Larry Bird and and and, and the Cel- the Celtics in the playoffs and actually they played the Bucks in the playoffs a lot too but um that was what kind of jumped me into basketball um and then not long after that you know like I said I'm from Dayton Ohio my mom's a teacher and she used to teach at this high school called Kaiser well, um, a few years later, a, a basketball player came out of uh, Kaiser um, named Ron Harper. And he went, you know, he went to Miami of Ohio, which was a local school. So we went to go watch him play a couple of times when he was in college. And then he got drafted by the Cavs, which is an Ohio team anyway. It's not Dayton, but it's Ohio. And so, you know, and because I felt like he was almost like a homeboy, you know, as I grew up, I would see him around, you know, around town. 
um, you know, he became my new favorite player as I was as I was kind of growing up. And so, you know, that that was my origins. You know, I used to listen to the games on uh, on the radio with my dad because there was no such thing as the NBA League Pass. So (laughs) we would listen to eleven hundred WWE, uh, listen to basketball games from from all over the country. And so that that got me into this. that's uh, that's quite an origin story. So, do you have a team that you really root for now, or are you, do you follow the, just follow the league more generally, or are you still a Cavs fan? I follow the league more generally. What what tends to happen is I'll have a player that becomes my favorite, and I follow them because um, the Cavs when they traded Ron Harper to the Clippers, and at that time the Clippers were like the worst team in America. I had trouble forgiving them for that. So <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so you know, then I think I became a Penny Hardaway fan because his girlfriend actually went to the high school my mom taught at, and so he felt like a home person. Then I went to college, and when I went to college, I went to Georgia Tech, and my freshman year we had another incoming freshman named Stefan Marbury who was like you know this, this this big deal on campus, and so then when he went to the pros, he went to the Timberwolves. So I kind of followed him to the pros and. They had this maniac named Kevin Garnett that I was like, man, if I was seven feet tall, I would play like that. And so then he became my favorite, you know. So I just kind of, you know, ended up having a player and then whoever they play for, that's who I like. So so who's your guy now then? You know what? I'm I'm looking for another one. You know, KG, I was hoping he would give it one more season because I felt like the Timberwolves were maybe on the verge of something. But um, he, he hung them up this year. So this is the first year that I can remember that I don't have a – a set favorite player. I really like Carl Anthony Towns, you know, um, so I, I pay attention to him. But there's a lot of good young talent in the league, so I find myself with the league pass watching somebody different every night. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm letting it happen organically. I'm, I'm going to see uh, who I end up pulling for at the end. Yeah, I, I, I know that sort of feeling I, for a long time. And he's still probably my favorite player, a guy that I pull for, but, like, for a long time, uh Joakim Noah has been my favorite player, and uh, mm-hmm. that's related to me rooting for laundry more so than it than it sounds like you do. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> at least uh, for the NBA, I, I root for laundry in other sports. But yeah. in the NBA, I'm more mercenary, I guess. <laughs> well, I, th- I think th- there's to a certain degree that's almost a, a more fun way to to root because. Uh, you know the the things that are consistent about teams tend to just be sort of like ownership and uh, who really cares about those guys? To be yeah, right. Yeah, these rich billionaires that uh, don't have any uh, cares in the world. Exactly. So, um, and like it's if you if you start rooting like for for laundry uh, of one team or whatever, and especially like I'm a Bulls fan, but I'm not Chicago based, so. Uh, my uh, allegiance to them is uh, sort of very attenuated. There's no hometown <laughs> uh, <laughs> aspect of it. Um, so I, I sort of feel that uh, th- that rooting for players maybe is, is better, but um, for whatever reason, I guess maybe, I think it's mostly the community around the Bulls really o- online is the thing that keeps me coming back, I guess, because I have uh, friends that I've developed through, um, you know, caring about the bulls and writing about them uh more than any more than any other thing that's been the thing that's kept me uh, around i guess as a bulls fan but um to, to go back to the the point that i was originally making is my f- favorite player for a long time was Joakim noah um but now it's like hard to latch on to him because he's just not the player that he was exactly he's you know still gets fired up and those sorts of things and it, uh, plays kind of maniacally, but he's you know he's just not the same guy, and 
you know, I really like watching Jimmy Butler play. He's really fun to watch. But I, for whatever reason, Noah just uh, the way he played him personally, just everything about him. I was uh, I was into his whole vibe. Um, and now I just feel like a little bit like a man without a country <laughs> as, <laughs> as far as like rooting for a specific player. But there's a lot of guys that I really like. Um, I really like uh, Well, two of them we'll, we'll talk about uh, today. And maybe that'll, that's a good segue. I really like Giannis. I like I love to watch him. And I really like Nikola Jokic uh, from Denver. And uh, you wrote recently about both of them. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll dive into your your piece that you that I think came out today um, for, uh, on Giannis. Okay. So your thesis, I guess, of the piece was that he's po- possibly the most improved player in the last uh, decade or so. Um, maybe maybe uh, even further back than that. I, I don't know. They, I think you just kind of stuck to that ten year window, so you didn't necessarily go back beyond that, but. Uh, you compared him to some of the most improved uh, player winners of, you know, of, of the last 10 years. And I guess you could just tell the audience sort of what you found as far as that goes. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, if you don't mind, I'll step back a little bit how this came about. Um, you know, I've been writing a lot about Giannis lately. He keeps coming up and um, I've. I've followed him through the years. Um, you know, I, I saw him play in Vegas and he impressed the heck out of me, by the way, while he was there. But, you know, I've just been kind of following his his rapid rise. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they played the Timberwolves and um, I actually did a, a, um, a, a different podcast where um, the question came up, you know, would you rather have. The, the two young players on the Wolves, you know, Carl Anthony Towns and, and Andrew Wiggins, or would you rather have Jabari Parker or, and Giannis? And, you know, it was a good debate, you know, and and then the next show I did, it came up again, and it was another good debate, and, and then I ended up writing about it from a fantasy point of view. And so at some point it kind of came down to Giannis versus Towns. And like I said, I really like Towns, and Towns is a monster. But then I started, like, well, let me look a little more in depth into Giannis. And so I started kind of looking at, at his history and his origin story, if you will, and just going through it. And it was like, you know, this guy's not even supposed to be in the league yet, at least according to the scouts. You know, when he was drafted, they said, well, yeah, you know, stashing for a few years in, in Europe and maybe he'll be ready for the NBA, you know, by the time he's 21, 22. But in the meantime, you look up and and he's, you know, right on the borderline of, 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 of the impact. Play. He's one of the impact players that you're talking about all the time. So whereas Russell Westbrook and James Harden are just putting up video game numbers, Giannis is right there with him. And, you know, he's this seven foot guy. He's not really playing point guard, but he's handling the ball. You know, he's playing kind of LeBron James point guard, if you will. And and so, um, you know, I started looking into him. And so, yeah, I, I I saw he had made a big jump and I wanted to quantify it. So. I looked at the most improved player award winners and I really I just went back a decade because I I figured that would give me a good test ground. I was like, let me let me see how he compares to, to them. Um, and I chose a couple of stats. Um, I really like you'll, you'll find I really like impact based stats, you know, the plus minus type stats or, you know, um, the, the with or without you type stats. But um for this since i was going back uh, well actually since Giannis is currently playing and plus minus stats kind of take a while to stabilize i decided to go with box score based composite stats and so i chose uh per based on the fact that it's probably the most popular of them 
but it's also, you know, that's one that's very, it's very influenced by scoring, both volume and efficiency. And then I chose the box score plus minus estimate, which is kind of more calculated to try to guesstimate how much a player's stats contribute to his team's impact. And so I said, well, I'll plot the two of those and I'll, I'll see how the most improved players did the year before they won and the year that they won. And I was like, I bet Giannis stacks up pretty well with them. I had no idea it was just going to be off the charts the way it was. I mean, his, his, his improvement is like orders of magnitude larger than at least those particular 10 most improved players. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's like they're, they're barely even on the same chart. And so it's possible that other players were making leaps like this and just not winning the award. But based on the award winners of the last decade, he's in a category of his own. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a fair way to go about looking for people that bit made big improvements. Um, just because, like, most of the the tools that we have um, in terms, like, short of pulling from uh, basketball reference, like, the season data for every season and then uh, trying to see who made the biggest leaps or whatever by building your own, like, little database that like looking for year over year improvements there's no like easy way to search through it um in, in a sort of quick and efficient manner so like y- using the uh heuristic i guess of the the voters probably get this like at least get somebody that's improved a lot whether they're the you know the most improved in that given year um you know may, maybe not but there if you have that sample of like 10 players uh that in each year it's the ones that the voters thought were the best like that i think that's a pretty good indication of like what is uh normally achievable uh at the sort of outer end for improvement for one player and then uh Giannis is kind of on a different plane um He's he, I, so I wrote about him um, as well, uh, not for nylon calculus, but like I, I have a little newsletter that I started, um, and uh, so I wrote about it for my newsletter, and then I as like as a sample for people of what the newsletter is like, I put it out on my site, um, and which is nbacouchside.com. Um, I guess if I'm going to plug my what I wrote, then I, I should really plug it. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. I, I should do the same. I'll work it in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, so I wrote about him and like just the fact that he's like, I think the biggest thing is that he's only 22 years old. And so I looked at him versus uh, at 22 versus in terms of, again, you, you're talking about impact stats like box plus minus. He had, uh, when I wrote that article, he was on pace to have the best box plus minus uh, of any player um, basically ever for a season uh, 22 years old or under. Um, better mm-hmm. than better than LeBron, better than Michael Jordan, better than Chris Paul, better than Anthony Davis, better than Shaq, better than any of those, uh, better than Kevin Durant. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that is just for him to have come from where he was like as a rookie. I think his box plus minus was like a minus one point eight, which is really close to replacement level, which is like you know just what you get for guys off the scrap heap. Exactly. He, he uh, to to go from that you know as a nineteen year old to what he's doing now is just insane. And then I I just um, included a bunch of like. 
clip like video clips of things that he's done and like I think the thing that really is incredible to me is that like it's just in, like he he doesn't really have a great jumper at this point mm-hmm. but it doesn't really matter because he's so long and his strides are so um exaggerated that like he can step over and around guys and then like if even if they think that they've managed to stay in front of him he just kind of extends his like uh, <laughs> inspector gadget arms and like flips it off the backboard and scores anyway. Um, yep. So it doesn't matter. Like you have to send multiple guys at him and then he's developed so much as a playmaker off of that because teams are really paying attention to him. Um, and he, yeah, yeah, he's just, he's having an incredible season for him to be sort of like, uh, you know, top five, top 10 in impacts. Most of the impact stats as a, as a 22 year old is, it's just kind of unheard of. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, um, and, I, you know, as I was alluding to, I've been kind of talking about Giannis a lot lately. But when I got into really before I, I, I published this um, on my uh, blog, hoopslab.rotowire.com, you like I work my plug in. But uh, <laughs> but um, no, on my blog, I wrote kind of more more about his origins, you know, and I talked about kind of where he was when he came out of the draft, how he was on a junior team in Greece and wasn't, you know, again, he wasn't thought of as being ready. Like he had just grown three inches to at that time get to six, nine. And so they were saying, okay, well now this guy is interesting, but he he doesn't have any polish to his game and that he could, you know, he didn't have much jump shot. And and so, you know, to go from there and then I, I mentioned I saw him in, in Las Vegas a couple years ago. That was the first time watching that game because I went to that game. That was the 2014 Summer League. So I went to that game to see Jabari Parker because he was the number two pick that year. And they were playing against Utah. So I wanted to see Dante Exum because he was like the number three or four pick that year. And instead, it ended up being Giannis against Rudy Gobert. And they both had already spent the league in, a year in the league, but neither one of them had broken out yet. And I was just watching this game, and it, it wasn't even so much their athleticism, which was obvious, or the fact that they were the best players on the court by far, which was obvious. It was their attitude that, like, sold me. I, you know, I was watching, and, you know, Giannis was scoring all the points for his team, and at some point Rudy had blocked, like, four or five shots in a row. And then it was almost like a, a old Western gunfight. Like they looked at each other like, OK, I see you. You see me. Let, let's do this. And there was a play, this sequence where Giannis went and posted up Rudy. Rudy wasn't even guarding him, but they switched off and Giannis posted him up. And um, and then and then no, actually, he didn't even post him up. He got the ball off top. They switched off onto each other. He took Rudy to the cup and dunked on him. And so. <laughs> Then they went to the other end and Rudy specifically went and sought out Giannis and posted him up and called for the ball. And then he drop step dunked on him right back. And those two plays, I said, oh, these guys are going to be players like, you know, from then forth, I was looking for both of them. And and, and they both kind of gone on to show that they, that they really did have that in them. I, I like looking for that in the player. I call it that dog. You know, both of them have that dog in them. And so I think when you. When you take a player that he's no longer 6'9", now he's 7 feet. Um, and again, he's playing in that LeBron mold where he doesn't have to have the pure jumper. But if he develops enough jumper to be dangerous when it's on, which he seems to be on that pathway. Um, whereas LeBron was built like a tank, so people bounced off of him whenever he wanted to go to the rim. Giannis is thinner, but like you said, he's 
seven feet with these ridiculously long arms, it's the same kind of thing. You can't stop him going to the rim, and then he can set up his teammates too. That's a potent combination. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned him him going up against Rudy Gobert because one of the other stats that I kind of pulled out when when I wrote the the piece I wrote about him was that so uh, you know I was comparing him to other twenty two and under players and his box plus, his defensive box plus minus so you know his box score impact stat based on uh, that's like an estimate of defensive impact he's got the best defensive box plus minus by a 22-year-old player or under, with the exception of one player, and it was uh, 2015 Rudy Gobert. So <laughs> yeah. 2015 Rudy Gobert is the only player this young to have this big of a uh, defensive impact this like this early. And it's just, uh, it's unbelievable. I've said it uh, in that piece and then in other places, he looks like seven-foot... Scotty Pippen to me, like, yeah, which is yeah. A, a terrifying prospect. Um, and then you, you know, you're talking about uh, his his jumper does seem to be improving. And then uh, apparently Dirk Nowitzki's uh, shot doctor Holger Geschwinder. I, I'm sure I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of his name, but uh, he apparently offered to tutor uh, Giannis on his jumper. Uh, this, this coming off season, so if he's able to improve at, at that uh, as as quickly as he improved on the other aspects of his game, uh, he's he's going to be he, like I think he'll be the best player in the league in in a year or two. I, I just don't know how you like how you stop him if he can really shoot. I mean, as it is, it's very very difficult to stop him, but. Um, you know, you can at least dare him to shoot and, and hope that that works. If he if his jumper becomes, you know, consistent, then it's kind of game over. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. He's, you know, and the thing that I would say for this year is, yes, you know, he he was termed a freak from the time he got to the league, and he seems to be growing into that. So I could very well see him as the best player in the league in, in you know, in a couple years. But it's, it seems like there are so many young players that are all just kind of doing these amazing things. And, and and that's kind of what I've been writing about lately. And, you know, some of, you know, my things haven't come out yet. You know, I've got something coming soon on Joel Embiid and how what he's doing is so out the box ridiculous compared to, you know, other great centers that have come along or, you know, Carl Anthony Towns and, you know, at any other time, he would be the most mouth-watering prospect around. You know, it's just there. There, this is a really good time for the NBA. You know, not to mention the the Russell Westbrooks and James Hardens of the world playing. Let's uh, let's see if we can break the stat base and, and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, the, the I, it's hard to to to, to think of a, of a time, and this may be me kind of just showing my lack of historical backing, I guess. But I would imagine that it's that it, you'd be hard-pressed to find a time when the league was more talented than, than it is sort of um, just in terms of in, you have all these incumbent players that are uh, doing these amazing things. And then on top of that, you have these young players that are coming in and doing things that nobody's ever seen before. And, you know, it, it's definitely a, a good time for the league. LeBron is still in, like, the back half of his prime uh, Stephen Curry is, you know, still Stephen Curry. I mean, he's not doing quite as much offensively this year, but that's largely just he's tamped down his role. But, you know, to all the guys on Golden State, James Harden, Russell Westbrook doing everything that they're doing. Then Chris Paul's still around, uh, mm-hmm. being amazing. 
and yeah, and then you have guys like you mentioned, Joel Embiid, you know, Carl Anthony Towns. Giannis and another guy who was pretty un, like relatively untouted coming into the NBA, but has been really impressive so far in a year and a half. You just wrote about uh, relatively recently was is Nikola Jokic for the the Nuggets. He had a great rookie year. It was very very impressive, and um, he had a, a, bu- a bumpy start to this year. Um, and I, I know that was part of what you wrote about, but uh, he's really taken off the the last few weeks. Um, so, so what did you, what did you find when you when you looked at uh, Nikola Jokic? Yeah, definitely. So Jokic is interesting because I think he he became more of a celebrity in kind of the analytics community than he did in the general NBA community as a rookie. Um, because last year, all you heard about if you put it on SportsCenter, as far as rookies goes, was Towns and Porzingis. You know, it was the two of them and pretty much nobody else was getting mentioned out of the rookie class. But, you know, when you looked at the numbers, even last year, Jokic was, you know, depending on how you analyze it, if you brought in the impact stats, he actually may have been more impressive than Townsend Porzingis were as a rookie. And it it just, it was, it kind of flew under the radar. And then I think that in the Olympics, he had such a good run um, that people that were at least watching the Olympics were kind of like, wait a minute, who is this guy? You know, how, how is he the, the 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 main the main threat to the U.S. team? And so I think maybe that opened a few eyes too. But then he came into the season and he just didn't do anything. Not not nearly what was expected. You know, I mean, you you, you alluded to that also. Um, you know, right for fantasy uh, basketball sites. And so in the preseason rankings, they had Carl Anthony Towns and on in, in, on the fantasy type cheat sheets. Carl Anthony Towns was up in the top 10 as far as picks this year. But then like uh, Porzingis and Jokic were right next to each other in the rankings. But, you know, through the first month, month and a half of the season, you didn't see any of that from Jokic. And what I was finding, I, I I had wrote about him about a month ago for Rotowire and also on the Hoops Lab, um, and and pointed out when he had a, a maybe three or four double doubles in a row coming off the bench that, you know, this guy's kind of turning the corner. You know, he's starting to kind of show what he 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 has the potential to be, and now we're a month out from that, and he's back in the starting lineup. And he's really starting to 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 get up to the player that that you know the the analytics community maybe thought he was going to be earlier. Um, I think a lot of it, you know, his trouble early on was that he had the I guess I don't know misfortunes the word, but he had the misfortune um, to be on a Nuggets team that had two really promising centers. You know, they had Nikola Jokic, but then they also had Yusuf Nurkic. And outside of their names seeming somewhat similar, um, you know, they also are both true centers. And the Nuggets tried to start both of them with the concept that, well, they're two of our best young players. Let's try to build around them. But they're both legitimately centers. And so Nurkic is maybe more of a traditional center, but, you know, Jokic isn't a power forward. And so trying to play the two of them together it just wasn't working they they needed to operate in the same spots they needed to you know get the ball in similar ways and then they just kind of clogged up the paint so the rest of the 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 perimeter players couldn't get in either so it just wasn't a good situation i think for that first month or so and and the nuggets recognized it surprisingly because i would have thought jokic was the main you know the primary prospect it was surprising that they gave nurkic the first kind of chance to succeed by leaving him in the starting lineup and moving Jokic to the bench. 
but as I pointed out, even from the bench, he 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 was outplaying Nurkic as the starter. And then now that Jokic is starting um, and, and and no longer playing next to Nurkic, you know, he's he's starting to put up some really, really big numbers. And, and that's kind of what that article was about. Yeah, he uh, I, th- I think that to a large degree, it was kind of a mirror of the, the problem that the. Uh, the 76ers were having when they were trying to play, whenever they would try to play Joel Embiid and, and um, Jalil Okafor together, uh, those mm-hmm. guys are both, you know, Embiid is kind of like Jokic in that he's a little bit more flexible. He, he does have some shooting range, but, you know, his best position is definitely center. Exactly. And Okafor, like Nurkic, is kind of a, a guy that wants to play down by the basket and is much even more of a traditional center than um, than his counterpart. And so that you, you see that kind of overlap, and it's understandable that they would, because of the assets invested in the players, that you want to get them on the court together and see if, see if it can work. Um, but the the odds of it working when the skill sets are are so uh, similar is is pretty low. Um, I really, I, I mean, I like Yusuf Nurkic coming out of the draft, and um, uh, so I, I understood sort of, and, and he was drafted uh, higher than than Jokic. But after the season that Jokic put up last year, uh, I would have thought that that would have put to bed, you know, any questions about who is the the better prospect uh, going forward for them. But um, I think also part of it was uh, Nurkic has a, has a more of that sort of nastiness to him. Mm-hmm. And Jokic is is pretty passive. He did an interview with with Zach Lowe, and Zach Lowe asked him about you know oh you it must have driven you crazy, uh you know be, being on the bench. And he was like no not really I I don't really mind the bench. <laughs> I come in <laughs> they're they're already in foul trouble. It's 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 no big deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but just from a team perspective, they play better when he when he starts because he's he you know right now he's a he's a better player than Nurkic Nurkic might get better going forward but I just think Jokic has a more developed set of skills he's a better shooter from away from the basket he's one of the best already one of the best passing big men in the league um Mm-hmm. Of player like centers that are, that score 20 points per 100 possessions or more uh there's like three people that uh three centers that have assist rates over uh, 20% and it's the two Gasol brothers and Nikola Jokic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he's, he's one of the best passing big men in the league. He, he can score, he can shoot. He's uh, a positive defensive player, despite not really being much of a rim protector because he gets a lot of steals for, um, uh, for a, a big man. And he also uh, just has generally like pretty good awareness. He, he's not, he's, he's not a, He's not a like I said a rim protector, but he does everything else pretty well, so it, it ends up not mattering. Exactly, exactly. You know, and you know that that passing element that you pointed out. Um, you know, as as we may get to for other positions, but it, it's it's one of my big I don't know beliefs or one of the big things I've learned just as I've really gotten into analytics um, in the NBA that being able to Pass and create team offense is extremely underrated as far as impact goes. You know, I think all of us really were trained kind of growing up that you look for who scores the most. That's your best offensive player. And a lot of times that's not necessarily the case. You know, um, I guess all players were taught on some level to score. You know, even if you took the scrub off the bench, 
um, and then put him, you know, he was probably his best, the best player on his team in college. And he was the best player because he was the best scorer, you know. So the amount of replacement value for a scorer isn't always equitable. You know, like the guy that scored 30, did he score 30 because he was scoring points that nobody else could score? Or was he just scoring because he was the one that was shooting? And if you let somebody else shoot, he would have scored almost as much. Um, but when it comes to passing and being able to have the offense run through you and 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 setting up as a hub that makes shots easier for others, um, you know, all, almost all of the plus minus um, studies I've ever seen bear that out as a really, really impactful, um, you know, skill set to have. And so, you know, you mentioned how on defense – Jokic isn't the rim protector that some of the other young centers are. And I think defensively anyway, that limits his upside where somebody like Porzingis or Towns or, of course, Embiid now, you know, they could grow to be more dominant as a defender if all goes well than than Jokic could. But as you mentioned, he's he's solid at that end of the floor. But on offense, you know, Jokic's ability to 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 pass and, and run the offense gives him an element of upside that even as exciting and tantalizing as some of those other players have, they don't necessarily have that degree, at least that type of upside like Jokic has. Yeah, he's and he's just a really fun passer to watch too. Like the, there's a lot of creativity to to his passes, um, which I which you know, and the fact that he's throwing a lot of them from the post. Uh, just you get a lot of different angles, and he sees things that you know other players can't because of his size, and um, he's willing to try things, which is fun. Um, he he he's a little bit like uh like uh, Vladi Divac, I think, in terms of mm-hmm. like how he passes the ball, and you know, big guys who can pass are, are just they're just fun to watch. They make the game fun, and I think that for to some degree, I, I think there's maybe a, an aspect of that where it gets it, it's almost more contagious if your big man is a good passer um in terms of like what it does for the team uh because you know big men traditionally aren't that good at passing the ball just because it's not a skill that is really tends to be developed for those guys um, mm-hmm. so if you're you know on most teams and you pound it into the the big guy you're kind of expecting either a shot to go up or you know just a kick out for a repost or something like that you're not necessarily expecting you know the guy to back back somebody down and then uh, throw an over the no look over the top of his head pass to somebody cutting to the basket. Um, exactly. And those are cuts that you know with most big guys maybe don't even happen uh, because nobody's like expecting that to to work. Uh, but because he has that vision, it gives guys the sort of incentive and desire to to make cuts that they might not otherwise make and. Um, create create plays basically out of nothing um and so yeah he's 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 really good he's, he's a really fun player and he's another one he's very young um so he, he's got a lot of uh you know upside and i think he still has a you know he, he could still improve his um his body and maybe his explosiveness a little bit to to maybe mitigate some of the fact that he's not the greatest rim protector or the most explosive athlete he's just so skilled yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And it's interesting that as you were mentioning some of the great passing big men, um, all the ones that you mentioned had a commonality. And it's the same one when I was asked about Jokic on the radio yesterday. Uh, the first thing I mentioned was, well, Vladi Divac and Arvidas Sabonis. You know, you mentioned the Gasol brothers, Divac, and um, 
somebody else. That, but again, they were all European. So yeah. used to the stereotype used to be that European bigs were just shooters. But you know now we're seeing a kind of another element of, the, of 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 their game. They they tend to maybe be more developed as passers, whereas a lot of times American big men, as you pointed out, are are more taught that if a big man gets the ball near the rim, he's supposed to try to score it. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. So to sort of tying into the the theme that you mentioned about uh, the value of being able to score and create, I guess, because uh, scoring is still important. I mean, I think it'd be uh, a little bit we don't want to sort of understate the importance of that because it does matter, uh, especially right. because the threat to score is sort of a lot of the time the thing that opens up that creative ability. Um, you know, if if you're not a threat to to score, then you're you can be as creative a passer as you want. It's going to negatively impact your, um, well, I just, I'm going to end up saying impact twice. It's going to negatively impact <laughs> your impact. <laughs> uh, if you, if you, I see what you did there. Yeah. If you, uh, if you can't score, I mean, I think you see a little bit of that with, uh, Rajon Rondo. He's never been a great scorer, but before he lost his athleticism because of his ACL injury, he was, a, he was at least a little bit of a threat to score, at least going to the basket. And now, He's afraid to go uh, to get fouled, so he doesn't drive as much, and he's not uh, he can't shoot. So um, teams kind of sag off of him, and the assists that he gets aren't necessarily as valuable. It's more like he's just passing to somebody. Um, he's not creating an open look. He's just passing to somebody who happens to make a shot. Uh, Rajon Rondo, you would open up a whole new can of worms with me. I think you, I think you might want to wait till the next time I come on the show because uh, <laughs> we, we could have a twenty minute conversation. I don't think he was ever creating impact. I think he just happened to be in the best possible situation for him. Oh, well, that, and that, now that our he's discussion not. <laughs> would be a lot of us uh, agreeing with one another because I've always thought that he was a little bit overrated. But let, let's not get down that rat hole. That's for next time. <laughs> All right. But so yeah, you wrote about uh, Russell Westbrook, uh, his incredible season that he's having relative to sort of the the, the best years uh, for Michael Jordan in terms of um, individual dominance. And you found some, some interesting stuff about uh, sort of what Westbrook is doing relative to even what Jordan did. And a lot of it, I think, ties uh, to this idea of uh, that he's, he's his assist percentage is so much higher, which is kind of an indication that he's even creating more offense. Yeah, yeah. So that was one. That article was fun. It, it came about like, you know, almost spur of the moment. Um, I had been writing about Westbrook. So what happened was so on the Hoops Lab, sometimes I make what I call barbershop conversations where I'll say, OK, you know, in a barbershop, at least the ones I grew up in, you would walk into it and people would be yelling, you know, <laughs> like the old coming to America scene, you know, Joe Lewis, the greatest fighter ever lived. Not better than Cassius Clay. You know, it, it, it's it's it's. It's like that with all sports. And so um, what I call barbershop conversation, I might say, okay, who would win or who would you rather have, say, Michael Jordan and, I don't know, Patrick Ewing or Shaq and Kobe, you know, and and, and then, then you can debate it. And so when I was making one of those debates and I was talking about Jordan, I was saying, you know, I have to pay attention. Um, everybody knows who Jordan is, but these days – you know, I'm, get, I'm getting old, man. So, you know, some of these young cats, you know, grew up their whole life and they never really saw Jordan outside of YouTube. So I described him as a Russell Westbrook, a six foot six Russell Westbrook. And it was kind of a throwaway line. But, you know, I just said it and kept going. But it was one that kind of caught people's attention. And it, it, it was, you know, getting a lot of response. And so I ended up kind of exploring that. And I, I wrote about, OK, well, you know what? Russell Westbrook, with the year he's having, he does kind of have a lot 
of similarities to players like Jordan and Iverson, even though with his triple doubles, he's being compared to Oscar Robertson and, and, and Magic. I was saying that he was really more like Jordan. And so as I was writing that one, I realized or I found that Jordan had actually made that comparison himself recently. He had said, you know, that of the players that are in the league right now, this guy Westbrook really reminds him of himself. And so, you know, so I was having fun with that. And then I started, you know, for nylon calculus, it's always about the numbers. So I started looking into the numbers. And what I was seeing was kind of interesting because, you know, at the time I wrote it, you know, um, Jordan, he always tends to have the highest volume when I compare him to other high scoring wings or perimeter players. Um, but in the case of Westbrook per 100 possessions, they actually had almost the same scoring volume. You know, Jordan, I, I picked 1988 Jordan because that was kind of his statistical peak. Even you, if you can argue he may have been a better player in some of those 90s years, um, his statistical, at least his box score statistical peak was in 1988. So I picked that year and Jordan averaged 43.6 points per 100 possessions. But when I did the article, Westbrook was averaging 44.3 points per 100 possessions. So it was like their their volume was very similar um, as far as scoring goes. But Jordan, as you would expect, it was much more efficient. You know, his his true shooting percentage was up over 60, whereas Westbrook's was under 55. Um, they both had about a two to one assist to turnover ratio. But Jordan's two to one was seven and a half to three point eight whereas Westbrook's was 15.3 to seven and a half. <laughs> and, and so, you know, anytime you start talking about something, well, he's got seven and a half turnovers per 100 possessions, that's not good. And, you know, his true shooting percentage isn't that high. That's not good. So I, I would expect the composite box score stats to go in Jordan's favor. And to some extent, they were, you know, um, you know, PER and win shares, things like that that are heavily focused on, on efficiency um, did have Jordan um, slightly ahead of Westbrook. But, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the box score plus minus stats, which are supposed to estimate, you know, as well as possible, the actual plus minus stats, which are kind of, to me, the actual impact stats. Well, in, in that stat, Westbrook was actually a little bit ahead of Jordan. And, you know, so I was it was the kind of thing where it's like, OK, well, I didn't expect that. Let's look closer. And so that's what I did. And as I was looking into it, I was realizing that, you know, as you alluded to when you brought this up and I've pointed out before, you know, creating offense is really valuable. Create Like the, the box score stats we have aren't necessarily set up to properly credit the person that created the, 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 that created the scoring opportunity. You know, we have points, which is the person that finishes, and we have assists, which is the person that passed to the one that finished. But, you know, what's the difference between, as you were saying, a Rajon Rondo assist where he just dribbles around and passes to a guy that happened to be open versus a Magic Johnson assist where he passed somebody open, somebody that was covered, his pass created the shot. Um, we're not really set up to, to evaluate that, but, um, you know, assists are kind of the best box score stat we have for trying to estimate how much someone might be creating. And so, um, you know, yes, Westbrook was, 
was averaging seven and a half turnovers, but he was also averaging 15 assists. So he was doing a lot more creating for, for his team. And essentially he's using more possessions than Jordan, but of the possessions he's using, a lot of them are leading to, to, to shots for his team. And so, you know, I explored and I, I went through and I compared, you know, usage, um, versus assist percentage. And, um, Maybe not quite to the extent that we saw with Giannis in in in, in the uh, article from today, but Westbrook this year is on an island on, on that particular chart compared to every you know every other kind of high scoring or high uh, impact point guard or, or shooting guard um, of the last twenty five years or so, including Jordan. And so I thought that was interesting. And then what I did was I took those kind of um, high impact offensive players. I used a, a, um, a multi-year plus minus study and, and, and chose offensive players that, 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 you know, scored well. And I compared their offensive RAPM versus their offensive box score plus minus. And what I found was that the, the offensive box score plus minus tended to track really well with the RAPM. But if anything, if uh, uh, the, the players that, had lower um, scoring efficiency. It, it, the the box score plus minus actually underestimated uh, their their offensive impact, and so that led back to well, if Westbrook is already measuring out with a higher offensive box plus minus than than Jordan, and based on their efficiency, you would expect that stat to underestimate Westbrook's impact. Then you could you know make a solid argument that 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 statistically Westbrook actually is not only having a little bit, maybe even a, a solidly more offensive impact this year, um, at least to that point than, than, than Jordan did in 88. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I think when you talk about sort of the impact stats, I, I think it's important um, uh, th- that sort of point that you made about comparing, you know, offensive uh, regularized adjusted plus minus or RAPM comparing that to box plus minus, uh, so box plus minus was created off of those uh, those statistics, um, and it treats the relationships between uh, between the variables as uh, linear essentially. And so mm-hmm. um, you know uh, players uh, that are at those extreme ends sometimes I think there, there's a possibility for uh, that it can cut both ways, right? Like you can right. use. Uh, it, uh, for players that are outliers on on some things, it, it can overstate their impact uh, because of the way that it treats them uh, treats all variables linearly, um, especially on things where the variables um, actually don't behave that way at the at the edges. And I think like um, so, you, the usage versus efficiency trade off is something that uh, has been found to exist. In, for the most part, in ter- which basically all that means is that as it sounds all fancy and scientific, but really what it means is uh, in plain English uh, for the audience is that uh, basically as you take more shots, chances are uh, the shots that you're taking are more difficult. And so your efficiency uh, is going to, to go down. So that's why it's like harder to do what Russell Westbrook does than say what DeAndre Jordan does, even though DeAndre Jordan is quote unquote more efficient. He's getting a lot of dunks off of other people's creation, whereas Westbrook is uh, taking so many more shots that the shots that he's taking are more difficult and uh 
presumably he's taking those shots because they're the best ones that are available, even though they are very difficult. Um, and so he's helping the overall team uh, by sort of hurting his own efficiency while uh, you know helping the overall team efficiency. Um, and I, I think that you know the fact that he I think he has an over like f- over forty percent usage rate right now, and he's still like hovering right around league average for uh, true shooting percentage, and that's really 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 hard to do. Right. <laughs> so to the extent that uh, the usage and efficiency trade off is not actually linear at, at the at the most extreme ends, I think that Westbrook is kind of showing that, and I think the your point in the piece kind of gets at that that. Uh, when you look at the those box score numbers for the really heavy usage guys that maybe aren't as efficient, their impact is understated by uh, something like box plus minus, which um, does a very good job of capturing that, but is uh, sort of um, it does have its its I guess blind spots um, because of some of the assumptions around it. And um, every metric has blind spots. Box plus minus probably of the box score stats has the fewest, um, but it, it's important to know those. And I think that you know that piece again did a really good job of sort of highlighting one of them, especially uh, sort of marshalling your case <laughs> for <laughs> for Westbrook. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I'm big on, um, I I had a professor, you know, a stats professor one time that um, had this expression, and I mean, it's not unique, I've I've since heard it elsewhere, but he would always say that, you know, statistics is more art than science, you know, and, and what he would mean by that is that, you know, for a a regular math problem, you're always going to get the same answer if you work it correctly. But with statistics, you have to be aware of the strengths and weaknesses of each method that you're using, like the blind spots, as you called them. And you have to to use them the way that they were intended. But there's not necessarily any one correct answer. You know, you have to just use all that you can to get the best picture that you can. And so that was kind of, you know, that's one of the things I try to bring, you know, bring out in anything that I write. And it's one of the things I was aiming for there. Yeah, I think you you did a good job with it. And I think like that it's in terms of statistics, I think the other big thing is that like um you know, the I think there's another great uh, quote and I, I don't know if it's from economics or from statistics, but it's where those things intersect. So I, I'm not sure where I don't have the attribution of this quote, but it's basically that all models are wrong and some models are useful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, th- that's the goal is you're striving for usefulness and, and for some explanatory power. And, um, you know, the, the impact box score stats, you know, do a good job of um, capturing a lot, but they obviously have their um, things that they don't capture. Um, and, you know, knowing sort of what the what those things are that they don't necessarily capture is as important as um as understanding what the what they do tell you i think so to going to the the theme of uh creation is important and uh scoring may be a little bit overrated um you wrote about andrew wiggins uh a little a little while ago um he had become a subject of sort of internet conversation some people kind of down on him and uh including myself but (laughs) right and so you you wrote an article about is you know sort of resetting his ceiling and so i I thought that that was uh interesting in terms of some of the comparisons you made of him to other players and uh again sort of tying to that theme of the importance of uh, creating for others uh and not just scoring yeah definitely so um with wiggins um 
he 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 kind of was popping everyone's eyes earlier in the season with some really big scoring numbers. And, um, you know, what I was kind of pointing out in the article is that high volume scoring in and of itself alone isn't necessarily, you know, isn't necessarily making the impact that, that, that we are trained to think that it is. Um, that if you've got a guy, especially a guy on the wing and, you know, I don't want to say all he's doing is putting up points because, as you pointed out, putting on points is important and it's a difficult thing to do. But if if he's scoring at a high volume, but not necessarily at a high efficiency and or not really um, creating a lot of offense for others, then his actual impact on his team's offense um, can actually be really pedestrian. And so um, with Wiggins. I actually had a third thing that I, I looked at with Wiggins, which was defense. But for that article, I ended up separating out and just doing the two offensive ones. And um, I think part two with the defense, I'm hoping to get out in the next week or so. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I looked at, I said, okay, well, I went back. You know, when when Wiggins was drafted or or before, you know, he's he's one of those that's had a buzz for a really long time, and um, he's from Canada. So with his buzz, it came with a nickname. They called him Maple Jordan. You know, he was going to be <laughs> the next Jordan, but the Canadian version. Um, and then even when he was in college and where he was about to be drafted, there were a lot of people that said, OK, well, you know, look how look at this guy's athleticism. Look how he can jump. You know, instead of Maple Jordan, he's going to be the next Kobe. And so when you look at what he actually has been in the pros, he he does have a high scoring volume, you know, may, maybe like those type players. But both Jordan and Kobe were also really good um, playmakers for their position. And I mean, they do other things, essentially. And and Wiggins, his style, he, he hasn't shown that he can do that yet. He, he So far, you know, he, he was when he was drafted, there was some thought, well, maybe he could be the the. Pippen to LeBron's Jordan. So, you know, he's six nine. He can jump over the house. You know, the thought was, well, he should be able to be a good defender. But then he was immediately traded to the Timberwolves and told to be the leading scorer. And it seems like that's what he took to heart. You know, he 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 went in there and he scored. He scored 20 points a game and was a rookie of the year. Then the next year they brought in Towns. And Wiggins scored. He scored 20 points a game and, you know, said, I'm, I'm one of the leading scorers on the team. And then this year in the offseason, he came back and he's got a better handle. And, um, you know, he's handling the ball a lot more. And he can also, he seems like he's been working on his shooting touch. But, again, he scores. He scores 20 points a game. He, he, he doesn't rebound. He doesn't assist. He just scores. And so um, I really wanted to look at how does how do players that play like him tend to show up in the the impact uh studies be they plus minus or for this article i used um wowie are so wowie is with or without you um and the regressed version of it um by uh, a, a guy I, I know him as lg his but name, um, his, his actual name <laughs> is ben taylor yeah, exactly. I was, I've always wanted to ask him where LG came from. but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is a good question. I, I want to have uh, Ben on the podcast at some point. I, I've talked to him a little bit about potentially coming on. I need to finish reading his book, um, If but uh, he wrote a book, self-published it. Um, it's on Amazon. I think it's called Thinking Basketball. 
Yeah, sounds right. But if you look up Ben Taylor basketball uh, on Amazon, his book is on there, and you should probably buy it because it's pretty good uh, if you don't already have it uh, to the audience. Nice plug. But yeah, Ben is a very interesting uh, thinker, and he writes good stuff at uh, backpicks.net. Um, and yeah, it's a, he, he came up with a wow we are, uh, and is, uh, that's a, a very interesting uh, application of the sort of uh, it's not plus minus, but it's the same idea uh, and it's historical. So um, it allows you to, to make some historical comparisons that uh, the fact that we don't have play-by-play data beyond, I think, 1997, um, mm-hmm. it, it allows you to do some of those kinds of impact comparisons, which is really awesome. Exactly, exactly. And so, it's, you know, I don't know, it's a relatively new, he just put it out, uh, his Wow We Are uh, tables, on back picks in in the fall so it, it's still relatively new um it, it hasn't been i'm sure as as uh tested and seasoned as is say rapm you know has been but as you point out it does have the really exciting possibility of putting oscar robertson michael jordan and lebron james all on the same impact scale, you know, that, that it's the only impact stat that really has that possibility. So, um, you know, and I thought about back to Wiggins that even though they thought he was going to be one of these Maple Jordan Kobe type players, really he's plays more like a small forward. And so I wanted to look at high volume scoring, small forwards for the most part. And with while we are, I could go back really far. I was able to go back to the seventies, um, and, and pick, pick out some high scoring, uh, Mainly small forwards, but I did include Jordan and Kobe in the mix because they were names that had been, you know, associated with him. And um, I, I started, I listed all of their their stats per 100 possessions. Um, and, and all of them, I think James Worthy had the lowest scoring average of the ones I used. And he was still averaging 27.3 points per 100 possessions, which is, you know, a, a good volume score. I believe at the time Wiggins was up over 30. And um, an, another kind of maybe traditionally one-dimensional uh uh scorer like that um you know DeMar DeRozan was you know he was also in my mind as I was as I was working through this and so you know so I I I compiled the uh the 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 wowie uh R stats for all of these different uh small forwards or all of these different wings anyway and then I uh, compared that with their true shooting percentage to see how much efficiency, you know, uh, affects how effective they are. And there was a general, you know, as you might expect, there was a general linear correlation um, where the 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 better the true percentage, generally the higher the Wowie R score. Now it wasn't exact. You had some, you know, you you had some exceptions. Uh, one of the big outliers was Kiki Vandaway in a negative way. Like he was ultra efficient, but he didn't really do it a, a lot else. And so at least according to Wowie R, he wasn't having this really big impact on the game. Um, but but for the most part, you know, there was a correlation there. So I was like, okay, that's nice. But then I did I, I did a similar comparison of Wowie R versus assist percentage, and it correlated like beautifully. Like it was almost uh, almost perfect. Like I drew it up that way where, um, you know, the, the, the high volume scores that also had the high assist percentage, like universally measured out really well in the impact stats. And 
as you kind of went down the continuum towards the really low assist percentage, high volume scores, they all had the really low impact stats. You know, uh, Kiki was an outlier here. He had the lowest assist percentage and he had the second lowest while we are among those mentioned. The only one with lower was DeMar DeRozan before this year, you know, so (laughs) take that for what it's worth. Um, But so one of the, the, I guess kind of my takeaway from, from that article was that, Okay, for Andrew Wiggins to be anywhere what people thought slash hoped he would be offensively, he's going to have to either become much more of a distributor or a much, much more efficient scorer, um, you know, at those those high volumes. And I don't you know, he just doesn't naturally seem to have the type of um, court awareness that you would expect from someone that's going to be able to really ramp up those assist numbers. So in his case, you know, um, I, I argue that, well, maybe he should work on, um, and I guess you'll see it in this piece that's coming out, but I argue that maybe he should be more of a, uh, not quite a three and D guy because he does have offensive talent, but that, that maybe instead of patterning himself after LeBron, he might just try to pattern himself after Kawhi Leonard and, and see if he can um, ramp up that defensive effort and intensity and then just be a, a finisher on the offensive end. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, even Kawhi has developed a lot as a, as a playmaker, but the, the, uh, I, I think that that's right, that he, if, if he's, that, that's an interesting uh, sort of debate, I guess, about uh, how much can guys improve as playmakers. Um, you know, because I think there's a certain school of thought that like that vision is something that you're kind of born with. Um, mm-hmm. You either kind of have it or you don't. Like LeBron always had that. Um, right. Magic Johnson always had it. Larry Bird, you know, always had it. So you know, I to, to some extent, I wonder if you know how like he could probably get to being like an okay playmaker, but he's never going to be sort of like. Uh, I don't think the the sort of high level creator that that for his teammates that you know you typically see in superstar players. So I think that that's right that he he's probably better suited to being sort of a, a secondary or tertiary uh, offensive weapon that you know really makes the most out of his defensive tools because the tools are definitely there defensively, but the results have have not been which is actually a nice transition to the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which is um, you wrote about the Timberwolves, um, which uh, given your interest in Carl Anthony Towns is not surprising uh, that you, you, you take an interest <laughs> in them. But you, you wrote about basically how they're missing Kevin Garnett this year and how last year they played essentially like uh, when he was on the floor, uh, he typically played against starters and they played like one of the best de- uh, defenses in the league. And then when he was on the bench, which was most of the time, they played like the worst defense in the league. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to uh, apparently, since he's gone this year, be a harbinger of of what uh, what was to come. Um, so, so you had some additional thoughts around that, but th- that was sort of the, the crux of the piece. Yeah. Yeah, that was the premise. I mean, so, you know, we always have to be careful with sample size, right? So, you know, Garnett had been in Minnesota all of last year and for a short piece the year before. But in both seasons, he was really playing 15 to 20 minutes a game when he did play and he missed a lot of games. So, you know, I I tried to, to say that in the piece, too, that, you know, I can't say definitively that they really were the best defensive in the uh, in the league with Garnett in there but what you can say is that you know for whether it's 
statistically significant or not, while he was on the court, Minnesota's defensive rating was down around 100 um, points per 100 possessions, which is right around the top of the league. And when he wasn't on the court, their defensive rating over those two years was up around 111 points per 100 possessions, which is around the worst in the league. And so my premise was that if there's any believability in there, and I think there is, you know, given Garnett's history is one of the, you know, the best defensive players of all time, then, you know, then, then that, that suggests that this unit had the ability to play defense at that level, at least for short spurts. Um, and I argued that since Garnett was at the end of his career and, you know, approaching 40, which in NBA years is like 100, um, <laughs> that the defense wasn't so great just because he was doing it all by himself. I was arguing that instead he was out there coordinating things and telling the young guys where to be. And, and yes, he was playing smart defense of his own, but that at the same token, he was as much a coach on the floor as he was a player at that point in his career. And that therefore, um, if, if, if those things are true, if the unit has the ability to play defense at a high level, but they need to really be coached up to do it, you know, my thought was that maybe considering they had um, brought in arguably the best defensive coach in basketball and Tom Thibodeau, that he could coach them up and they could be a good defense as soon as this year. That that was what I expected coming into the season. But then Garnett announced his retirement and then the season started. And for the first <laughs> month and a half, two months, the Timberwolves were just like they were without KG, you know, one of the worst defenses in the league. But when I wrote the article, I was noticing that they seemed to be kind of turning a corner, that um, kind of starting towards the middle end of December, they were playing a lot better defense. I think at the, the time I wrote this article, they were still ranked number 27 overall in defensive uh, rating. Or no, they were up to 25th. But um, when I looked earlier this week, the trend has continued and they're up to 23rd. So they, they've been playing better defense of late. And, and so kind of the the ultimate conclusion I came out of in this article was that, well, okay, yes, they were capable of it, but they had to learn how to do it. And without Garnett there acting kind of like a TA on the court to really <laughs> translate to them, you know, these young guys, how to, to, to play defense, that it, it's taken them longer to get it just from the professor, you know, just from, from Coach Tibbs. But that over time, they are starting to slowly pick it up. Um, I don't know that they'll get this season to where they maybe would have been if Garnett was still there, but it does seem like they're starting to kind of get it, which is a step in the right direction. Yeah, so they, uh, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think that one of the, I mean, Garnett, one of his strengths always, even you know when he was in his prime, um, he, he did a lot himself, but he was also one of the best communicators mm-hmm. in, the, in the league defensively. Um, you know, very loud, uh, knew where guys needed to be and, and was call, always calling things out. Um, and also very intimidating, so you didn't want to, to do things wrong if he's yelling at you. So I think that went a long way. To, <laughs> Ask big baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think that went a long way to, to sort of um, uh, getting the his defenses beyond just his own personal impact on defense. He was able to raise the level of his teammates and have a huge impact defensively, and I think uh, to a large degree, what you saw last year, even though he his body didn't allow him to do kind of the same things himself, he was still his mind was still there, and he was still be able 
um, being on the floor to see the things that needed to happen and call them out, and he was still intimidating. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so they, you know, those young guys, uh, they're looking at him. He's like, oh, he's he's KG, he's a Hall of Famer. Like, I don't want to let him down, and also he's very large and scary. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that always helps. Um, so I think that that made a big difference. And but just to to your point about how they they started to seemingly turn the corner, I just quickly pulled up the NBA stats page um, and looked at the the last 15 games because uh, they have like different segments you can look at the last 15 games the Timberwolves are 10th in the league in uh, defensive rating um, which explains why they're starting to climb up the ranks from you know sort of bottom of the barrel um, which kind of makes sense to some degree like to to I guess expect them to have been able to just uh, as a very young team and very young teams tend not to be very good defensively uh, to expect them to like just after one training camp be able to to take Thibodeau's um, scheme and implement it and you know just hit the ground running without a KG out there um, was maybe always a little bit optimistic but it seems like they're getting there um, and if they can continue to uh, play at defense at a high level I think that'll go a long way um, although they're reportedly looking to to move Ricky Rubio uh, because of sort of the the slow start to the season it, try to get it get some assets for him that will probably cause their defensive rating to suffer because he's a very good defensive point guard um yeah but, uh you know overall just from a bigger picture perspective it does seem like they're starting to to kind of get it um and uh you know that that's definitely uh should be heartening for timberwolves fans oh yeah yeah i mean because ultimately i think with with the young teams like that um that's what what kind of the fans are, are are looking for these days is, okay, well, do we have some exciting young talent? Okay, check. And then does it seem to be moving in the right direction? You know, like these days with the, the, with the bronze calves and everything going on in golden state, um, I think probably most teams don't expect to necessarily compete, but you want to at least feel like you're on the road towards competing. And, and if, if they are able to really adapt and adopt, um, uh, Thibodeau's defensive schemes and become one of the better defensive teams in the league when you've got offensive threats like Towns and even if he's limited Wiggins and and, and Le- Zach Levine, um, you know, that, 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 that certainly uh, lets them feel good about the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they, they have pieces and even if Wiggins, even if he doesn't improve at all as an offensive player but just becomes a, a much higher level defensive player, um, you know, mm-hmm. him with Towns is is still a nice combination, um, especially if Towns becomes sort of what he, everybody kind of envisions for him. They, you know, it's hard to to really be uh, upset about their core. And uh, you know, Zach Levine is not really a defensive player, but uh, he he's you know a little bit more uh, well rounded offensive player than than Wiggins and um, shoots it a bit better. So uh, they have an interesting trio there, um, and so and you know they've got one of the the better coaches in the league, in my opinion. Um, even though I used to trash him when he was the Bulls coach because <laughs> because I was because I was stupid. Basically, I, I, was, I was gonna say you were you were too close to it. You were too close to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I, I have since repented for my for my sins against Thibodeau, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. He, 
I, I, as it turned out, the things that I used to criticize him for were largely personnel-based, it turned out, because uh, they went to a lot of isolations and post-ups, especially with Pau Gasol, and that used to drive me nuts. But right. um, but that's just kind of Pau's game, and that's what he does. So it, it turned out that, uh, and then when they brought in Fred Hoiberg, they still went isolation a lot, even though that's <laughs> not Hoiberg's offensive style at all. Um, so in any event... Uh, I was wrong. Thibodeau is still great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, everybody else that, that already knew that was ahead of me. So, uh, but yeah, you're right. I was too close to it. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's the, the, those were the topics that I wanted to cover. I, I just wanted to, uh, you know, thank you for coming on. I uh, really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, if you if you don't follow uh, Andre, he's at Professor Doctor Z. Um, on Twitter, uh, you should follow him. You should check out uh, the Hoops Lab and check out everything that he writes for Nylon Calculus, of course. Um, but uh, Andre, do you have uh, anything specific to plug coming up? Or um, yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the Hoops Lab. I, I have something come out pretty much every day. Hoopslab.rotowire.com. Um, you know, with with Nylon Calculus, I'm in the analytics. With Rotowire, I'm fantasy sports and DFS. Um, with TYT Sports, it's more general basketball knowledge, and the Hoops Lab is where that all comes together. So, you know, nice. uh, come check come check me out. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, well, Andre, th- thanks again for coming on, and uh, we'll have to have you on again soon. All right, I look forward to it. Yeah.